And the person who's done the best job uh, of documenting what really happened during all of this is Mark Pendergrast, who has written the book, uh, The Most Hated Man in America, uh, which uh, unfortunately uh, has been ignored by the news media. I predicted and told Mark uh, from a very early point, this was, this was how our relationship did not get off to a great start because when I learned he was writing a book, I told Mark, um, you do understand that this isn't going to get published, right? And he thought I was from outer space. Because he is someone who's a he's a very accomplished author. You've re- you've read other of his yeah. books. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a guy who's very legitimate, very respected. He's written well over a dozen books. Uh, he, you know, he, he's 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 legitimate, and he's ne- he's never had a, a b- book like this not uh, be embraced by a major publisher. I told him, no, you're you're not going to be able to find a major publisher, and and if you do get the book published, it's going to be ignored. He thought I was crazy. Uh, he's now willing to admit that that I was correct in that because this is how different this case is. This is how how this case is so fundamentally different than what the world should be and what the norm the world normally has been. And Mark didn't understand that until it was too late. He thought we were still in Kansas. We're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. Uh, we're in the Wizard of Oz on this case. All right, and, and I knew that because I had already been in the front lines. And that's why Mark actually puts a chapter in his book about me. I mean, basically, is this you know this uh, martyr to to the to the cause of truth, uh, and it's not you know it's not a completely flattering chapter, but I'm fine with it because you know whatever. I mean, I don't. All I care about is that people understand what really happened here, and if it means making me look bad at times, I'm I'm fine with that. So so let's talk to Mark now. Okay, John. So let's do that. He's on the phone with us. Our special guest. Mark Pentergrass, the author of the book, The Most Hated Man in America. Mark, welcome, first of all. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really curious in your book, The Most Hated Man in America, which Jerry Sandusky, of course, has become. What was it at first that drew you to the story? Well, someone emailed me and asked me to take a look at it because they thought that there was some repressed memory therapy involved in it, and I had written uh, a couple of books about repressed memory being uh, highly questionable at best when someone supposedly had completely forgotten abuse and then recalled it later. And so when she called me, I, you know, she emailed me and I thought, well, that's ridiculous. Of course he's guilty. Everybody knows he's guilty because of that kid in the shower incident that uh, Mike McQuarrie witnessed. And she said, no, that doesn't stand up either. You better take a look at that whole thing. And it turns out that that indeed is highly questionable. In fact, they know who the kid was in the shower. Uh, His name was Alan Myers. And he completely denied that anything had happened, which John Ziegler knew and was trying to say on national television, but nobody would let him. So he ended up just waving this uh, uh, document in the air, but never being able to, to quote it. At any rate, once I realized that was a problem, I looked into it, and there are many, many indications that, uh, at least among the beginning uh, accusers, that repressed memory or bad police interviewing where they basically uh, kept saying to them, look, if you just remember uh, anything, you're likely to come up with more stuff. So let us know if you uh, recall something else. So the implication was that these memories come back to you piecemeal, which is not, in fact, how memory works. So that was what got me onto the subject in the first place. And I became kind of obsessed with it the same way that uh, John Ziegler uh, did, because uh, it's just an enormously complicated rat's nest that ended up, certainly, I think that the the repressed memory did have a good deal to do with the beginning of the case, but also from the beginning it was very distressed, disturbed young men seeing that they could make a lot of money from this, and certainly that's uh, apparently what happened to a large degree with uh, Brett Swisher House, the uh, victim number four. Mark. Um, so it was a combination of factors. 
Mark, yeah. um, we're calling this episode Fishing for Victims, and this is the period of time in uh, the early to mid part of 2011 after the prosecution uh, has Aaron Fisher for a couple of years. They now think they have Mike McQuarrie. They start to learn about the 1998 episode, uh, and now they start on a fishing expedition to try to find accusers who will back up uh, Aaron Fisher and bolster their case because they they realize that going with just Aaron Fisher is just not going to work for a lot of reasons. So they they feel like they need corroboration and and a cumulative effect of more and more accusers. And during this time period, uh, there are are several that they are able to uh, be able to groom into becoming uh, victims using, at least in your opinion, this idea of repressed memory therapy. Take us through this period of time and and specifically uh the the key uh, accusers uh, number number three four five six and seven and what you know about how therapy in general and repressed memory therapy in particular may have played a role in in those people becoming accusers of jerry sandusky okay you've got to realize that it's very difficult to find proof of all of this um we certainly know that uh, victim number three changed his story. Most of them changed their story a good deal. Um, so at first, when they're approached by the police, and most of them were in this photograph that was in uh, Sandusky's uh, autobiographical book, Touched. And so they were searching out the people in that photograph. Um, Jason Simcisco, who was victim number three, had been uh, very close with Sandusky, but never said that he did anything to him uh, until the police started going after him, and until he became the uh, uh, he became the client of Andrew Shubin, who was the lawyer who, who uh, sent a lot of these people to counseling to try to remember more things. So, uh, San Francisco had begun by saying that Sandusky rubbed his shoulders and gave him bear hugs in, in, in the shower after, and that was, that was what he gradually came to believe after he said that he didn't do anything whatsoever to him. And then it gradually went to, oh, he touched his penis, and then he uh, did all kinds of other things practically every night that he was there, and he said... I tried to block this out of my brain for years. It's all just coming back to me. So it's it's highly questionable. Uh, and, I, and what's interesting is that in his trial testimony, Simcisco said that he was infuriated with Sandusky, enraged, hurt. But it wasn't because he had supposedly abused him. It was because... He thought that Sandusky had forgotten about him because he was uh, uh, in a troubled uh, home, and Sandusky never reached out to him again when he was uh, uh, in a uh, group home, but it's in a psychiatric hospital. But it turns out they wouldn't allow any uh, non-family visitors, uh, which is why Sandusky hadn't reached out to him. So it's kind of telling to me that that was what he was most infuriated about, not, not any of this supposed terrible abuse that ruined his life. Um, the other interesting thing about them, by the way, is that, you know, over time, they changed their attitude so that uh, everything became Sandusky's fault in their life, but that didn't happen until they were at the sentencing stage and they were making all of these statements, whereas at the beginning of it, most of them had said, oh, he's a good guy and he, he helped me out in my life and things like that. Um, so uh, the one that I call the star victim, uh, number uh, four, is, is Brett Switcher House, and he's the one that basically refused to say anything to the police when they showed up. Uh, and, and didn't accuse Sandusky of anything. But the reason the police showed up and the reason he got a lawyer was that his father 
his biological father basically said, uh, you need to get a lawyer and try to go after these people because uh, basically it was clear that you could get a, a lot out of it. So uh, Sandusky had indeed spent a great deal of time trying to get Brett to uh, do well in school, uh, not take drugs, and uh, be sort of, you know, he wanted him to get to, to college, etc. Many people who knew him called him a, a pathological liar. Uh, and so uh, it appears that House decided. By the way, just that no, he was Mark, going Mark, Mark, let me just stop you there. One of the people who said he was a liar on the stand was his mother, right? Yeah, his mother said uh, had 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 told him once that uh, no, this is House actually had had said that his mother said, "Oh, this is just another one of your lies." So she didn't call him pathological. It was uh, one of his best friend's sisters, uh, whose name was Megan Rash, who who, uh, who accused him of being a quote pathological liar. So, um, so, so, Mark, what's interesting is that he, go ahead. Well, no, go ahead. If you, if you have a thought, go ahead. Well, what's interesting is that Houts did come up with some, uh, you know, very damning accusations when he was being interviewed by the police. Then, and his lawyer was present during that time. But they also left the tape recorder on uh, during the time that he was taking a break to have a cigarette. And they basically said, we know that other stuff happened to him, and we're just going to keep going after them. And they were referring to how they treated other uh, clients and said, it took months to get the first kid after it was brought to our attention. First it was, yeah, he would rub my shoulders. Then it just took repetition and repetition. And finally... We got to the point where he would tell us what happened. So their assumption was that something terrible had happened and that they would just go after people and after people and after people until they told them what they wanted. And in this case, the holy grail was uh, to get him to say that oral sex had occurred, which he didn't do that first time. But uh, eventually he came around and, and, and did. Um, and Houts, you know, he he also said that he had, he, I have, quote, spent so many years burying this in the back of my mind forever, et cetera. And he eventually uh, was sent to Mike Gillum, who was the therapist who worked so hard to get Aaron uh, Fisher to, uh, quote, remember uh, oral abuse and, and get him to testify that, that bad things were happening. Um, Mark, so let's 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 stop there for a second. Indicative. I mean, that, that's a, it's a remarkable fact that almost no one knows about in this case is that the the two people who were most clearly uh, alleging uh, a, a sexual act of abuse uh, by Jerry Sandusky at the time of his arrest, which is obviously a very key moment because after he's arrested and the and Paterno is fired and Spanier is fired and Curly and Schultz are indicted and the, and the world is collapsing. After that, all bets are off. So at the time of arrest, which is what we're building to in this in this episode, it's Aaron Fisher and Brett Houts who are making the most clear allegations of a sexual act. And by the time the trial comes around, they both have the same therapist, Mike Gillum. That's exactly right. Now, how significant yeah, is that? How, how, how significant is that? <laughs> well, I think it's pretty significant. Um, a lot of, you know, I, I will say that this is such a complicated story that I would urge people to actually read the book because we're not going to be able to cover all of this uh, in one session. So uh, please do get hold of The Most Hated Man in America. Um your website has even more information, but I think that the strength of my book is that it is sort of organized in a you know a fashion that people can can read through it and and uh, I hope uh, get. 
pretty full indication of what, what was going on in the case. Mark, you, you uh, the repressed memory part, the repressed memory part. People have heard of repressed memory. Repressed memory has come up. But repressed memory has since in time, I think in the 90s, pretty much been debunked. And you've done some work on that, haven't you? Yes. Um, I wrote a book called uh, Victims of Memory, and then I... Uh, came up with an updated version of it called uh, Memory Warp. So Memory Warp is what people should uh, take a look at. But essentially the idea was that that Freud came up with it back in the uh, late 1800s, that people could be abused, uh, raped uh, for years at a time, completely forget it, and then recall it later in their lives. And there's no evidence that that's the case. Uh, you can't disprove it because you can't prove a negative. But the fact of the matter is uh, that, you know, there were people who were virgins who were <laughs> claiming that they'd been raped for years. So some of them you, you knew couldn't be true. In fact, what we tend to remember the best are, are the worst things that happened to us were the best things that happened to us so that we can avoid the bad stuff and seek out the good stuff again. Um, it's not a completely black and white issue. Certainly people can and do forget uh, being fondled or, or lesser incidents, uh, but it's unlikely that someone would forget completely uh, uh, really dreadful things uh, happening to you. So that's sort of the the short version of my conclusions. And Mark, the the world's one of the world's foremost experts on this issue is Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. I know you know her very well. I've gotten to know her pretty well. Interviewed her several times. She has actually testified on Jerry Sandusky's behalf during his appeal uh, hearings. How significant uh, do you see that as being? And, and and are you? I know. I know you. You were a bit surprised by how the media ignored your book. Uh, are, were you surprised that the media has also somehow ignored the the impact of Elizabeth Loftus uh, being willing to put her name on Jerry Sandusky's defense? Yes. Uh, I was surprised by all of the above. Uh, Loftus certainly is the uh, world's renowned expert on the uh, problems with repressed memory testimony. And uh, I had actually suggested to uh, Sandusky's lawyers that they consult her on it and get her to, to read some of the background material. And she was as appalled as I was by what she found. Uh, so, yes, I think it's... The media basically only wanted to hear one side of this from the very beginning. I thought that once we had a substantial case to make and made it public, that it would cause, you know, a, a lot of coverage. And instead, it's just been basically blackballed and ignored. It, it's, it's an amazing thing. I've never seen anything like it with a book. But that's what happened. And, and for the record, there was somebody who warned you that that would be the case, wasn't there? That was who was you. that, John? <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just for the record, I just want that out there. All right, now, um, and, and, and to be clear, your book is tremendous, and in a rational world, it would be a bestseller, and it would change the world. But unfortunately, I was well aware at that point, having already been at the front lines of this fight, that that was not going to happen in this situation. I, I want to talk a little bit more about, uh, but wait, before I leave Loftus, it's not just Loftus. Within the psychological community, in the academic psychological community, uh, I have learned that there are numerous people who have now become totally convinced of Jerry Sandusky's uh, guilt. I mean, I'm sorry, completely convinced of Jerry Sandusky's innocence, some of whom are even willing to go on the record, but many of whom are not. Tell us about about that, people who, who are within this community of experts who have looked at this and gone, hold on a second, none of this makes any sense. This is an innocent guy. Well, none of them are, are, are particularly brave about saying that he's totally innocent. And I, I can't tell you that either. I mean, I, I think 
that he is very likely to be innocent. But, who, you know, nobody can tell you that with, uh, you know, 100% total certainty unless they were there. But Richard Leo, who is a professor of uh, law and psychology at the University of San Francisco and has written uh, about false allegations, he certainly was impressed enough to, to write a very nice blurb on the back of the book. So was Loftus, so was Dr. Fred Berlin, who is a uh, major, who spent his entire career uh, examining real pedophiles, uh, thought that Sandusky simply, that it didn't make any sense that he would maintain his uh, innocence, refused to take a plea bargain, uh, had no pornography on his computer, because most, most pedophiles, they will rationalize what they've done. They'll say, well, uh, yes, I did that, but it was because, uh, uh, you know, they wanted it. It was love, etc." Sandusky has never admitted doing anything whatsoever. At any rate, yes, there, there are quite a few uh, people, you know, and even uh, Bob Costas, who did the infamous interview with... Uh, uh, with Sandusky, uh, where Sandusky stumbled all over himself. Uh, he was willing to say uh, that my book was very interesting and that it made a good case, but he wouldn't let me put it on the on the back cover of the book when push came to shove. You know, uh, that uh, he, he thought it should be published. I want to ask you a little bit. When you said most pedophiles will do this, is what your research shows, how do most victims act? How do most victims talk? Do they tell someone ahead of time? Do they? What does that look like usually? Well, most victims will tell somebody something. You know, uh, the fact that Sandusky eventually was accused of having, you know, uh, abused over thirty uh, people, none of whom told anybody anything at the time. Contrast that to Larry Nasser, for instance, whose victims told lots of people uh, what was going on with the, the gymnastics uh, uh, treatments that he was giving them internally. Um, and uh, it's quite a contrast, I think, between the two. Mark, uh, you, you mentioned the famous photograph in, uh, in Jerry Sandusky's book, Touched, and of course, uh, I'm of the belief, and I think you are too, that it's, it would be insane for someone who had been able to cover up his crimes for as long as Jerry Sandusky is alleged to have done to have called his book Touched and then put a photograph with four of his primary victims in the book. But there, are, there they are, victims four, five, six, and seven uh, are in that book. They all uh, effectively uh, at least know each other since they're in the photograph together. A couple of them are close friends. Uh, one of them, Dustin Struble, number seven, you actually interviewed. Uh, tell us about that experience and why you think it's relevant to the issue of repressed memories in this case. Well, Dustin Struble was the one who understand uh, when he was uh, testifying. He had kept recalling more and more different things uh, of how he was uh, touched, whereas he had initially uh, not said much of anything uh, and said that Sandusky had, you know, been a great guy who, who had helped him out. So when I saw some of those quotes where he said, uh, that doorway I had closed has since been reopening more, more things have been coming back and things have changed since that grand jury testimony. He was the only one who was willing to let me uh, interview him of, of all of the alleged victims. And he told me, yeah, uh, I've been to, to both of my therapists have suggested that I have repressed memories. My therapist has suggested that I may still have more repressed memories that have yet to be revealed. We are currently working on that. So there's absolutely no question that he, you know, thought that he was being, quote, triggered to remember uh, all of these horrible things. 
that he hadn't recalled before. Uh, you know, and he told me this on tape. John, you you kind of in, in, in subsequent ahead, emails as well. John kind of snickered because it's. But what I'm wondering is, is there a possibility that that maybe there was something in this guy's past with somebody, Dustin Struble? Maybe somebody. I, I don't know. I mean, do, maybe not to fit. You know, maybe he is a victim somehow. Is that a possibility? Well, people's everything is a possibility, but I think it's unlikely. Um, you know, everybody has uh, trouble in their past of one sort or another. All of these kids wouldn't have been in the second mile if they hadn't had uh, problematical pasts. Uh, but I'm I'm careful about this with the repressed memory thing because um, people will think will say, "Oh, that's a screen memory. Uh, uh, that really means that somebody else must have done it." And that's usually not the case. Usually it's that somebody comes up with the idea that they must have been abused, and then they get them to picture it. And in this case, uh, to Struble, this explained any of the problems that he had had uh, and, and that he was being triggered by, let's say, uh, uh seeing a mesh T-shirt that, that was the kind that Sandusky had given him when they worked out together. Uh, so I think it's a matter of expectation uh, more than anything else is. He doesn't, so, seem, to, he doesn't seem to be yeah. triggered by uh, getting into the luxury cars that he's been able to buy with the money he got from Penn State. I mean, you'd think that might uh, trigger some memories, too, that, but there's no evidence that that's happened that I can tell. Um, but with, Yeah, what, the, many of them bought a lot of, of things with what they had. You know, <clears throat> I'm, I'm generally very sympathetic to people who come up with memories that are probably not true, but they come to picture them and believe in them. But it certainly uh, doesn't hurt that they also have made a great deal of money from this. And it's made it. I, at first, I was hopeful that if, you know, I actually sent Dustin Struble a, a copy of my book and said, you know, you ought to read this because you've basically been influenced by, by therapy. And uh, I was hoping that he would actually take the whole thing back, uh, but I was naive about that, I think. Yeah, it sounds like you might have been. There's, he had several million reasons to, to not reconsider uh, his position. But I, I am curious, Mark, did you feel like Dustin really believed that he had been abused and just couldn't remember it? Or, or do you think that, uh, as has been my theory, and I've never spoken to Dustin, and, I, and so you have a better opinion on this than I do, or at least with regard to him, uh, my opinion has always been that these guys figured out that repressed memory was the ma were the magic words to use to explain why they never said anything at the time. What was your impression of what you thought Dustin actually believed happened? In Dustin's case, I'm quite convinced that he truly believes it. He truly did believe it. Um, one of the things he said was that, uh, for me, it seems like a giant puzzle that I seemingly stumble into key pieces. And uh, he, he clearly did believe it, and he clearly talked about it with, uh, with uh, uh, Zachary Constance. Constus, who was a uh, uh, victim number, which one was he? I get Six. confused about all these Six. numbers. Six. Six. Yeah, he was the 1998 one. And he and Dustin would talk together about being in therapy and are you remembering anything else? And Zach never could come up with anything else, but he concluded eventually that he must have blacked out somehow or other and blocked whatever horrible thing that Sandusky might have done to him when he lifted it up to the shower. And, of course, it didn't make any difference to anybody in the jury because they uh, found him guilty of grooming him, of, of deciding that he, he wanted to do something. So it was irrelevant whether he actually did anything or not. But in the case of Struble, no, I, I think it's very clear from my conversations with him that he really did believe it. 
How significant? Um, how, how significant do you do you think it is, Mark? And we've already referenced this photograph, this, the, uh, which I think is an incredibly important uh, piece of evidence that has been completely misinterpreted in in the opposite direction of the way that I think it should be uh, seen. Here you have victims four, five, six, and seven. They're all in the same photograph. It's in Jerry Sandusky's book. Uh, there's evidence that the mom of victim six helped all of them come forward. Uh, to tell their stories, they're almost as if they're they're um, working off of each other, uh, feeling more confident in their own ability to tell this story because uh, the others are also involved in in this. Uh, is that the way you interpret the the four friends in the photograph all being such a, a huge? You cannot you cannot underestimate four out of six of the arrest accusers are in that photograph it's the it's it's the it's the centerpiece of the whole case without them there's not even an indictment in all likelihood is that the way uh, you see this situation yes i think that they many of them were talking to one another uh and were influencing one another behind the scenes I think that that may very well be what happened with Michael Kajak, who is victim number five, and who's the one that, as I said, is most disturbing to me, because unlike the others, he, he avoided talking to the police initially, but when he finally did talk to them, he said that uh, uh, Sandusky had uh, placed his hand on Sandusky's erection during the single shower that they had ever taken together. And that was the first time he talked to the police. Now, this is not tape recorded, but I assume that this is accurate. But it's also extremely unusual in terms of what Sandusky was supposed to have done. He was supposed to groom people very carefully without making any overt uh, moves the very first time that he ever does anything with anybody. And, in fact, Kajak had been talking to other people and thinking about all of this and uh, et cetera. So uh, he then changed his story uh, many times. He changed the date of it to make it more convenient so he could get a lot of money to make it later. He changed it from a shower to a sauna uh, and, and many other things. I would love to have been able to talk to KJAG because he was he became very very important uh, in the other cases too against uh, Graham Spanier and. Uh, uh, yeah, I I, wit the, uh, I witnessed it. I don't know if you know if you know this, Mark, but I witnessed KJAG's testimony in the Graham Spanier trial, and uh, there were uh, uh, there were several uh, people who were in the the boat of Jerry Sandusky must be guilty, but, you know, the administrators and, and Joe Paterno got railroaded, who uh, almost immediately uh, turned to me and said, uh, what the hell was that? Uh, he, he was single-handedly uh, responsible for being able to convince a couple of people uh, that at the very least Jerry Sandusky's innocence should be uh, further considered because his testimony uh, was frankly uh, a joke, uh, and it was, it was presented almost as if it was a joke. I mean, there were there were no real questions. The uh, you know he wasn't even uh, sworn in in the presence of the jury. They protected his name. They had Kleenex uh, a Kleenex box put there on on the on the witness box before he came in. They did everything but uh, spread rose petals uh, and get, and give him a red carpet uh, coming into the courtroom. The the bailiff actually admonished everyone to keep quiet during his entire testimony and said that uh, if anyone spoke out, uh, obviously referring to me, uh, that they would be arrested. Uh, I mean, it was it was unbelievable. No one who's ever been in a courtroom before had ever seen anything like this. And and Kajak, to me, uh, I think he is completely convinced that he was not actually abused, uh, if only because of the photographs we have of him. And we have we have photographs of him uh, doing things that are completely nonsensical uh, regarding Penn State or or being an alleged victim of, of sex abuse. So, uh, you know, I, there's no chance that Michael Kajak is ever going to speak to you or to me, Mark, because uh, I think he is well aware uh, that he was never abused. Um, is there anything else that we should know about the cultivation of victims four through seven in this critical time period, Mark? Well, I think that it's important to realize that the police 
interviewed something like 600 other uh, second milers. And the vast majority of them said, no, nothing ever happened to me. And uh, Sandusky was, you know, he was touchy. He would uh, grab my, uh, squeeze my knee when we were driving. Uh, and he would hug me. Uh, but it, most of them, at least initially and, and continued for quite some time, didn't say anything. Once he was found uh, guilty and once he was convicted, uh, then everybody started coming out of the woodwork because it was very clear that there was going to be a lot of, of, of money. In fact, that it was very clear from the time that the uh, the uh, uh, presentment, the grand jury presentment, was leaked to the press. Uh, you got two more people coming forward uh, calling the hotline that made no sense whatsoever. Those were victims 9 and 10. Um, I, I think that we've, that we've covered, uh, yeah, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Yeah, I, I think we've covered some of them anyway. Mark, uh, what I want to ask you about, and this is, a, you know, I'm a member of the media for 30, more than 30 years. There, one of the things that's the most difficult thing in all of this, and, and also, Mark, I have ties to Pennsylvania. I grew up in Pittsburgh. Brother went, a couple of brothers went to Penn State, this type of thing, right? And when I talk to people back there, they will, no way will I ever believe there's a chance Jerry Sandusky is not guilty. There were so many victims. These young boys came forward. They were on the stand, and he was guilty. That's how they talk. The questioning of victims is a very difficult thing for members of the media because they get shamed. Why don't you believe these kids? This is what they say. They said this happened to them. What's your experience here? Well, I think you're right that uh, no one, particularly, you know, by the time my book came out, it was just at the beginning of the Me Too movement beginning. And so to, to question anybody became completely anathema, uh, and, and that's not something that was allowable. Um, the fact that we're naming these young men and the fact that I looked into them is also anathema. Uh, one of the things, I, I called it like uh, uh, naming them after Dr. Zeus characters, uh, uh, victim one, two, three, four, and they were called victims, not alleged victims, uh, from the very beginning. So. It became a matter of, no, you, you can't begin to question any of this uh, or you're going to uh, be accused of, of being, a, you know, a pedophile uh, yourself or you're going to be accused of uh, abetting uh, all these evil, horrible people. And I understand that. I understand that if people, as I said, eventually over 30 people came forward most of which made no sense whatsoever if if they had been vetted uh, in any way. But basically, Penn State decided to just throw money at them, uh, regardless of, of whether it made sense or not. Um, and a lot of them followed, you know, the sort of rote thing about, oh, I was in the shower with him and he, he did these terrible things to me. Um, so... I, I, I guess what I would urge people to do is, is to read the entire book and then make uh, your decision rather than just saying, oh, there are so many uh, of these victims. Oh. Um, you know, here, here's one thing they, they, they said on that tape recording that, I, uh, that they didn't know the tape was on. We had a kid in here the other day who thinks the world of him, Sandusky. We never got that far with him. I think we're going to talk with him again because he left here. In fact, I said to him, you know, we're done with you now. You're shot. Your mind is absolutely a sponge. I mean, this is a horrible thing to do, sit these kids down. I keep calling them kids, and they weren't kids, by the way. But By the way, that's really important. By the way, just to stop right there. These are adult men. Yeah, yeah, because a lot of, a lot of people think they're eight-year-olds. Yeah. yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I keep calling them kids. Sit these people down, and then they realize, oh, man, 
I didn't realize that's what he was doing this whole time. <laughs> well, if somebody is uh, uh, pushing his erection against you or forcing you into oral sex or all the things he was accused of doing, you know very well what they are. But the, the police basically wouldn't take no for an answer. And if somebody said nothing had happened, they thought that they were covering up. Mm. And if they finally did say something had happened at all, they would go after that, and then they would say, don't you remember any more? There must be more. Please tell us more. And this is classically bad police interviewing, uh, and there's a confirmation bias involved where they they think, yeah, uh, it must be that they're hiding something and that something else must have happened. And, Mark, let's not forget the presence of attorneys these uh, you know uh, brett house bizarrely has an attorney there with him what what why he needs an attorney while being questioned by investigators is is uh completely baffling to me uh, but the attorney obviously has a massive financial interest they know what's going on here they see the writing on the wall they they see that this could be incredibly lucrative for everybody so uh, and the therapists uh, you know i don't think they have a financial incentive other than maybe Mike Gillum, but therapists, in my experience, you know, they see abuse everywhere. I mean, they, they, they even where it doesn't exist. So, so you, it's not just the police here, right? I mean, the, the lawyers and the therapists are an important part of this equation. Well, yeah, the therapists, yeah, you have to be careful. I mean, not all therapists are like this, but the ones who believe in the theory of repressed memory, that trauma is uh, repressed, yeah, they have a predisposition to believe it. Uh, ben Andre- Andreazzi was the name of the lawyer for uh, Houts. Mm-hmm. And uh, he should not have been present during these interviews. Uh, he was. And in this tape, he, was, he said he was happy. I thought uh, Scott got further than I did with him. I wonder if there was an oral sex. So he's basically pushing the police and saying, oh, you got further with him. You got him to say more than I did. And, and now let's – they were sort of colluding to see uh, whether they could get uh, more. And let's be clear, that, uh, that, that lawyer represented not just House, who made a lot of money, but several other victims who made a lot of money. This lawyer made millions and millions of dollars from this case. And I don't think that was a big yeah. shock to him. One, before we let you go, Mark, uh, you know, we're not just talking about uh, during this time period, the cultivation of accusers. There was also the cultivation of janitors uh, and the so-called victim eight episode, which has no victim. It, has a, it doesn't have a lot of things. It doesn't have a date. It doesn't have a, a corroborating report or a contemporaneous report. It doesn't have a victim. It doesn't even have a direct witness when it comes to trial. But during this time period, the so-called victim eight janitor story comes to the attention of the investigators. Tell us about how that story evolved. Yeah, well, he, uh, a guy named Ron Buck, Petrosky, who had been a longtime uh, janitor at Penn State, he uh, read the uh, newspaper article that Sarah Gannon had written uh, in March 31st, uh, 2011, uh, saying that uh, there was a grand jury uh, case going on against uh, Sandusky, which was a leak. And should never have happened because grand juries are supposed to be uh, not known. So he came forward and he told a story that another janitor named Jim Calhoun had told him that he had seen Sandusky uh, giving oral sex to a boy in the shower and was very, very upset about it. Now, he changed his story several times. Uh, basically to make the lawyers happier. It's it's a complicated story. But the problem is that Jim Calhoun, by the time of the trial, had uh, uh, Alzheimer's and couldn't testify. So this was like secondhand testimony. It was like double hearsay testimony. 
it's incredible. There was, in other words, there was no victim really to, to testify. This was a janitor testifying what another janitor supposedly told him. And then I discovered that there was this tape recording that the police had made with Jim Calhoun before he went totally uh, around the bend. And I was able to listen to that tape recording. And basically what became clear to me was that, yes, Jim Calhoun had seen someone giving oral sex to a young man, not necessarily a 14-year-old, I would say probably a 16- or 17-year-old, but that he was insistent that it was not Sandusky, not Sandusky that he had seen. The fact that the lawyer never brought this up during the trial is remarkable, and I'm pretty sure that he just never was aware of this tape recording or interview he claimed under oath that, oh, yeah, he knew about it, but he didn't think it was important to bring it up. <laughs> well, I, uh, believe it or not, Mark, I I, uh, I think Joe's telling the truth there. Um, I, I think, having spoken to Joe Mandola about what happened there, that he became convinced that Calhoun had dementia and that, therefore, is somehow in his brain – it would be inappropriate to bring up this interview where uh, Calhoun says three times it was not Jerry Sandusky that he saw. Now, my question to Joe was, Joe, if he had dementia at the time of the interview, why is the prosecution interviewing him? Why are they bothering to interview him? You know, I don't even know if I necessarily buy the dementia explanation. I think what happened was this. They interview Calhoun. Calhoun doesn't tell them anything close to what they want to hear. He says it wasn't Jerry Zanusky three times, and they decide, we're sorry to tell you, Mr. Calhoun, you have dementia, because that was the proof that you have dementia, because you aren't telling us what we want to hear. That's what I think happened. What do you make of that? It's inconceivable to me that any lawyer would have this thing where where the guy says, no, it wasn't him. No, it wasn't him. No, it wasn't him. But, yeah, I did see something horrible, and he, he had great affect about it. He was quite convincing. That, I, we're saying the same uh, thing, Mark. He, Mark, Mark, what Joe, Joe was intimidated by the prosecution into a lot of things. And one of them was this idea that, well, no, no, you can't, you can't bring up uh, uh, Calhoun. He's got dementia. And, and I'm not convinced. I, 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 are you convinced that in that interview that Calhoun has dementia? No. Uh, I, I'm, you know, he was he was beginning to fail. He was beginning to have problems with his memory. But for the for the fact that he saw abuse, that stuck with him. You know, he said, "I saw him, a boy, get sucked. It was terrible to see it. It was something in my life I never wanted to ever see again. I was shaking like a leaf." And then he said, "Mr. Calhoun, do you remember Coach Sandusky?" Yes. Do you remember if that was Coach Sandusky you saw? No, I don't believe it was. You don't? (laughs) I don't believe it was. I don't think Sandusky was the person. It wasn't him. There's no way Sandusky never did anything at all like that that I can see. That doesn't sound like somebody who is so far around the bend. Somebody who saw something terrible happen, really upset him. But it wasn't Sandusky. And what happened was uh, Ron Petrovsky took this memory he had of Calhoun being all upset about having seen somebody being abused, and he put it together with the story of Sandusky, which had just hit the news, and decided, oh, it must have been Sandusky that he, that he was saying this about. I agree a hundred. So I, I agree a hundred percent. I agree a hundred percent. There are just a couple things though on that. First of all, you said whatever he saw was a sixteen or seventeen year old. We're not talking about a young kid. Okay, number one, that sticks out to, in my mind. So the, Calhoun's yeah, well, upset he, Calhoun about. Calhoun said that he was more quote more than just a kid, way over ten. Okay. But that the perpetrator was much older. Well, the, to me, the most significant thing is he clearly says it's not Jerry Sandusky, and he clearly has a clue about what he's talking about. 
And 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 you're 100 percent right that it's absurd that this not only didn't come up in trial, it was never even known until way after Jerry Sandusky was convicted, not publicly. And then it should have been known because it's incredibly relevant, especially in an episode that has nothing else backing it up. It doesn't have a date. It doesn't have a victim. It doesn't have a contemporaneous report. It only has hearsay uh, evidence through this uh, Petrosky testimony. And by the way, not only that, Mark. But the other janitor that was supposed to testify at trial never does. So the, the prosecution right. the prosecution promised two witnesses. In fact, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I think they convinced the judge to allow this in to evidence, even though it was hearsay, based upon the idea that they had two witnesses, but they never produced the second witness. So I mean, that's right. They never did. I tried to I tried to find him and failed. Couldn't couldn't get hold of him. Let me mention one other thing, by the way, because, you know, Matt Sandusky, the adopted son, mm-hmm. he he claims a repressed memory also. And this is what happened in the very middle of the trial. Uh, he flipped and said, oh, now I remember the dad was abusing me, too. And that's why Sandusky was unable to testify himself. That's why none of his other children were able to testify, because they thought that that would let Matt come on the stand. Matt at the time said he was in repressed memory therapy trying to remember this, but he hadn't yet remembered oral abuse. By the time he went on uh, television uh, with uh, Oprah, lo and behold, he had remembered it. And he said that it was because he was in therapy and he was recalling all this uh, other stuff. Uh, He said uh, that he had repressed a lot of it and that it was a confusing time. My child self had protected my adult self. My child self was holding on to what had happened to me and taken that from me. So I didn't have a memory of it. I didn't have these memories of the sexual abuse or with him doing all of those things that he did. Now, later, when he came out with his book, he decided, oops, I can't say that. Uh, so he said, no, no, I, I didn't repress it. But he did write, the more I tried to block it out, the more visuals I would see. I had denied it for so long that now I was owning up to me, the memories flooded over me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the basic message is memory does have a lot to do with this case. So does greed. So does terrible policing, so does so do greedy lawyers, so does the media. Uh, but, you know, the, the crux of, of the case with um, victim number two, who was Alan Myers, as we all know, that comes down to McQuarrie, Mike McQuarrie, changing his memory. What he actually saw at the time, which is probably late in 2010, as you pointed out, John. Late, uh, late in 2000. 2000. I'm sorry. Late, yeah, I'm sorry. Late in 2000, not 2001. But the crux of the matter is he saw through a mirror a kid and peeking out, not looking alarmed, and having an arm drag him back. And then he saw Sandusky later come out of the shower. And he also heard slapping sounds for a couple of seconds, which he interpreted as sexual. But that's what he saw. Then, 10 years later, the police come to him and say, we heard that this horrible thing happened, and we know Sandusky is an evil pedophile, uh, a perpetrator. What did you see? And at this point, no big surprise, 10 years later, he changes his memory to match what he thought was happening. Now he says he saw him moving uh, his butt subtly against the, the back of uh, the kid in the shower, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas we know that what was happening was that they were uh, snapping towels at each other, slap boxing, and that Myers was running up and down the shower, sliding on the floor, et cetera, and having a good time. Well, we'll talk a lot more about Alan Myers in, in an upcoming episode of the podcast, as well as Matt Sandusky. But I do want to point out that Matt Sandusky, as you well know, Mark, uh, not only had the same lawyer as many of these other uh, accusers, including uh, Jason uh, Simcisco, 
and number three, but also the same therapist, Deborah McCord. And so when you have nine accusers going to the same lawyer using the same therapist, uh, it's not surprising that they come up with the same exact And no result. one thought that was, no one brought that up in court as something that was being <laughs> suspect at all. That was never, well, ever questioned. Well, well, part of the problem is that, oh. the, the you're right, and Mark's correct, but part of the problem is we only know all of this in retrospect because we now know who got the money, how much they got. Uh, you know, at the, if, at the time when they testified, they were all theoretically able to say, well, I, I don't care about money. This has nothing to do with money for me uh, because they haven't been paid yet. Uh, but they all knew. They all had lawyers that knew uh, that they were going to get paid. And Andrew Shubin, uh, who we will talk a lot about because he was victim number two's lawyer as well, uh, he is a key, key figure in all this. But Mark, um, thank you so much for your work on this. Uh, thank you for your time today. Uh, um, do you Do you see any hope for this case ever uh, being resolved in a, a remotely satisfactory fashion? Well, you know, in the book I said that I thought it was highly unlikely that any judge in the state of Pennsylvania was going to risk their career by saying that Sandusky could get a new trial. <clears throat> Unfortunately, that's been true so far. They have, you know, unearthed more evidence now of collusion between Frank Fina, the prosecution's lawyer uh, and, and the, uh, in the attorney general's office, and uh, Louis Free and his people who were uh, investigating the case, they weren't supposed to be talking to one another, and it's very clear that uh, Fino was leaking grand jury information to them, uh, to, to Free and his colleagues. That should be grounds for a new trial. It's new evidence. Uh, I would be astonished if they uh, would would rule that that was the case in Pennsylvania. So I think eventually the case will have to go to a habeas corpus to the federal level. And it's possible uh, that they would grant him a new trial because I think that the case is quite overwhelming uh, that that he should get a new trial, but I I don't know. What do you think? I agree with you that the federal court, I've said this for many years, the federal court is the only place that there's any shot at, 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 just, at any semblance of justice here because a state court uh, where almost all the judges are elected uh, and, and where the media is completely invested, there's zero chance uh, of any justice in Pennsylvania. Uh, I think a rational federal court would, uh, would look at uh, so many of these issues and say, what the hell happened here? Uh, because even if, by the way, even if Jerry Sandusky was guilty, even if he was guilty, there were so many problems with this case that uh, a federal court would easily grant a new trial. My concern is time. Uh, and, uh, you know, with now with everything bottled up because of the coronavirus and, uh, and Jerry Sandusky getting on in years, uh, I just don't know if there's enough time. And, uh, but if a fair federal court ever looks at this, they will, they will be horrified by what, the, what happened here from a due process perspective and, and maybe even from a, a, an evidentiary perspective as well. But um, on, on that, I think we agree. Um, but, um, but anyway, Liz, do you have anything else you want to ask? Or? I think no, but I also think it's interesting what you say about the media, that John and I are both from Pennsylvania and live in California. And to the, the media in Pennsylvania to give this a look the right way, I don't know that that will ever happen. I've seen John slam so many times on this. Um, by media that were completely closed-minded. And that's not the media's job. Media's job is never to be closed-minded. So that's the way I see it. I see... Right, because everyone's invested. The me- Everyone is invested. Yes, the, 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 and I, we see that in our, our times right now. Mm-hmm. When you're invested in the narrative, to go back and change, you have to admit that you got something wrong. The only integrity the media has is to admit... That's why there are corrections in the... Sorry, no one reads the newspaper anymore. Right. But, you know, <laughs> that's why I correct. You are but, only as good as but, your word. But you can't correct something where you put all your chips down. When you put all your you, you chips down. You can always down, correct something, well, John. I, I'm, I agree in theory. But, I'm, but what I think Mark and I are talking about is that no one will because, yeah. because there's too many chips that were down. They put all their chips down yeah. on this story in two days. In two days, they put all their chips down. And that presentment. And, 
Yeah, and because of the grand jury presentment, they put all their chips down, and to admit they were wrong on this would be catastrophic to their credibility, and a lot of careers would be uh, destroyed because of it. And 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 to Mark's point, it's also it's a very complex case. You're never gonna have Mark. I think you agree with this. You're never gonna have Aaron Fisher, uh, uh, Alan Myers. And Matt Sandusky uh, hold a, a joint press conference saying we lied. And by the way, even if that happened, I still think the media would go, well, what about the other 33 guys? Exactly right. I mean, exactly yeah. right. No, I don't. I, I used to think I was quite naive. I thought, you know, especially with the Alan Myers material uh, and the McQuarrie material and, and the, the Dustin Struble interview that I did. I thought, yeah, they're they're bound to, you know, this is interesting material. At least it will get covered. At least it will, you know, hit the press. But that's not true. It never, they they wouldn't publish it at all. Anyway. Well, Mark, thanks so much. For uh, your, thank you so much for your time. And uh, obviously we'll keep in touch on this. Okay. Thanks for having me. Take thank care. you, Mark.